stories from around the corner and around the country. You're listening to All the Best. Proudly supported by the Art Gallery of New South Wales. You're listening to All the Best from FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Madhura Prakash. Before we get into this week's stories, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that I'm recording from stolen Gadigal land and pay my respect to Gadigal elders past and present and also recognise that the area where FBI Radio is situated, Redfern, has long been a place of storytelling, strength, resistance and resilience for First Nations communities. This week, stories that shine a light on the colonial structures in the healthcare system. In our first story, personal injury lawyer Sally Gearin speaks about seeking justice for a client, whose courage to overcome her tragedy inspires Sally to this day. When I was about 16 or 17, I was at boarding school at Our Lady of Mercy College in Parramatta in Sydney. And uh, I was coming back from late study and uh, I went into the, uh, the communal bathroom and there was a baby boarder in there sobbing, crying and so distressed and she was washing the blood out of sheets. And I went over to her and I said, what's going on? And she said that Sister Anne Mary, who she'd asked for help, had told her that she had to go and she wasn't allowed to go to bed or get any clean sheets until she'd got all of the blood out of her stained sheets. I was incensed. You know, I'd never really spoken truth to power in my life. I was only 16 or 17. But I said to her, come on, darling, we'll come and and I'll get you some clean sheets and I'll take care of Sister Anne Mary. You just leave that there. And, and uh, anyway, I, I went back and, uh, and it wasn't long before Sister Anne Mary came and she said, where's so-and-so? And I said, if I ever see you behave towards anybody like that ever, I'm going to tell the bishop. Of course, I didn't know the bishop. But <laughs> I was absolutely furious And I said to her, you know, you wear a habit, you are a sister of mercy, and you have behaved in such an appalling, thoughtless, bullying way to this young girl. I said, I just never, ever, ever want to see that again. And that experience actually really empowered me because I knew that Sister, I had Sister Anne Mary then. I mean, she was never gonna, never gonna take me on again. And, and it was just wonderful because what it did was it showed me that how powerful you can be when you speak justice, when you see injustice. And I knew I'd won my first case. <laughs> And it, and it felt just great. <laughs> Forty years later, another young woman came into my radar in my practice here at the bar, and she required justice too. The case that I'm about to tell you about stays with me to this day, and 
it gives me strength in times when I think it's all, everything is all just too hard. And we all have those moments. So, okay, just imagine you are a young, beautiful, powerful, 15-year-old Aboriginal girl living on country, enjoying your life. You're living the life you know you were born to live. You don't speak English. You get pregnant to an older man, Banjo. Wrong skin. Your mothers are sisters. You go to Alice Springs with Banjo to have the baby delivered in the hospital. The baby takes a long time to come. And you come out of that experience as a paraplegic. You and Banjo believe, as does all of your mob, that this is a punishment for wrong skin. The old men of the tribe tell Banjo that he has to stay with you because of what has happened. And in fact, you have two more children with Banjo. My client demanded to live on country. She didn't want to live in Alice Springs. She wanted to live on country. She seeks assistance because she thinks, maybe it wasn't all my fault. She seeks assistance from lawyers. In 2002, right, the second year of the 21st century, I get a brief. Her lawyers had abandoned the case without even consulting her. For some reason, allegedly, they couldn't find out why you would go in as a very healthy young woman to Alice Springs Hospital to have a baby and come out as a paraplegic. I, uh, I then got an extension of time for that case for 20 years, which was almost unheard of, but we got there. I got a gynaecologist from England because I've found in my years in Australia as a personal injury lawyer that often it's very difficult to get other, other doctors to call out their own tribe. And so I wanted to get somebody who was going to give me a really proper opinion because I just knew this was not possible. I knew I had to drive down to see her. She lived 350 kilometres west of Alice Springs out on the Plenty Highway. When you get to Hearts Range, that's when the bitumen stops and you've then got about 150 or 200 k's. I was there in February, stinking bloody hot. And, 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 you know, and wet, red sand, you're zooming all over the road, wondering if you're going to get bogged or if you're going to turn the car over. It took 10 or 11 hours before I got to the community. Whew, we got to the community went to the nurse's um, uh, medical centre. There was a, a permanent nurse there. And um, we were shown our room, which was very nice. It was air conditioned. We had bunk beds and we had our own bathroom. And then I went down to see my client. My client was living 
on a slab of concrete. At one end of that slab of concrete was an old corrugated iron shed, a small shed with no windows. Inside that shed, on 40-gallon drums, was a piece of plywood with a small mattress on the top of it. The room was so small that you couldn't get, you couldn't get into it, you couldn't walk around in it. Um, there was no air conditioning, there was no power, there was no kitchen, there was no stove, there was just that room and the rest of the slab of concrete. My client was sitting on the ground with, she'd made a fire with some sticks, boiling a billy to make me a cup of tea. Next to her was the wheelchair, which was like something out of World War I. I was just horrified. I'd never seen anything like it. Banjo was there. He was quite a nice bloke. He spoke uh, some English, or what we would say in um, courtroom parlance is he knew just enough English to get himself into trouble. Um, and, uh, and so he was, he was working. He worked as a, uh, as a stockman on Jervois Station. And um, anyway, my client didn't have very much English, hardly any. But anyway, she got up, uh, she was put into her wheelchair and she took me over and showed me where her ablution block was. Now this was um, built probably 20 years earlier. It had a, um, was again corrugated iron. I mean, we're talking 40 degrees plus in the summertime and we're talking freezing in the winter. Um, no hot water, a raised toilet, no door, impossible to keep clean. God knows who used the, um, the toilet. Um, just a hose attachment for a shower of cold water. And that's how she lived. But you know, this woman didn't stop smiling. It was just incredible. She didn't seem upset or angry. She was just showing me what her life was. Outside the ablution block was a big tub where she proudly showed me where she did her washing, her sheets. So she would um, wash the sheets in cold water and then she would wring them dry and Banjo had spread for her a clothesline made of, barb made of barbed wire, which was nearby, and he turned the barbs down because the only way you could get the height so the sheets didn't hit the ground was, and she showed me, like an Olympian, she would throw the sheets up like that and they'd go over and, of course, they wouldn't fall off the line because those little knuckles would hold them. She didn't have to do her own washing, I'm sure, but she did it and she proudly showed me that she could. I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that anybody in Australia in the 21st century was living like this. I knew that she would have to come in to Alice Springs because I needed to take a proper statement from her with an interpreter. There was only Banjo there and he was obviously going to be involved in the case as well. 
So she had to, I don't know if you know much about paraplegia, but the issues with paraplegia are you get massive urinary tract infections, you get, um, you get sores on your buttocks, and you get very often very significant and very painful renal issues, which is kidney, basically kidney problems. So um, she had to come in on the back of the ambulance, 20 hours drive into Alice Springs, which would have been very, very painful for her. Um, you know, I was in my jackaroo, it was okay, I was feeling pretty cool then. I'd done the trip there, going back was easy, you know, uh, back into Alice. And um, so we get to uh, the legal aid office in Alice Springs and I'm sitting there. My, uh, my interpreter was the recently deceased um, Rosie Kerner Monks, who was just wonderful, and my client there in her wheelchair. And um, I said to um, I said to her, as you always say to personal injury clients, like I want you to tell me all the things that you can't do because of your injury. You know, um, uh, you can't dance. You can't go and get sugar bag out of the trees. You can't teach your girls to dance. She just looked at me and said. Nothing I can't do, Sally. Unbelievable. And I thought about it and I said to her through Rosie, you can't run away from Banjo. You've had two more babies. Well, we all looked at each other and we laughed like girls laugh. And her eyes were dancing, you know. It was just a wonderful moment. Then I told her that we'd got the report back from the gynaecologist in England and what had happened was they had given her two epidurals. I don't know if you know, there's an epidural space at the base of your spine. A lot of women that have had babies have probably had an epidural. Um, but it's only a very small space and you can only put a certain amount of liquid in it and then you have to wait until it permeates. They'd given her two epidurals in 10 or 15 minutes, and that put too much pressure on the epidural space, bang, into, onto the spinal cord. That's what caused the paraplegia. Um, so I told her that, and I said, you know, it wasn't your fault. It's not wrong skin, nothing to do with that. The hospital, they were the bad ones. You know, they had an inquiry, I mean, really, that they didn't work that out. Anyway. So I then told her that, you know, you're going to get a really, really big bag of money, okay, <laughs> which I love telling my clients, and you're going to be a really, really rich woman, you know, you're going to be very powerful. And she didn't kind of do anything like that, but I could see that it just touched her, you know, it, 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 she just let it wash over her. It was like, that was... That was nice, you know, but it wasn't massive enthusiasm or anything like that. She was satisfied. She knew she had justice. She died six months before the hearing from renal failure. But she knew it wasn't her fault. 
Her spirit never wavered. She was never defined by her injury. She still gives me strength on bad days. She would have been 50 this year. Thank you. That story was told by Sally Gearin. Sally originally shared this tale at Spun, a live storytelling event from the Northern Territory. Spun is now held at Brownsmart on Larrakia land. Since 1972, Brownsmart has been championing new work and new voices in the Northern Territory through residencies, creative developments and presentations. You're listening to All the Best from FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Madhura Prakash. Are you interested in creating your very own audio story? All the Best is dedicated to supporting emerging storytellers. You don't need any experience, just enthusiasm. If you're interested, get in touch with us at allthebestradio.com. Next, we hear from Gumaroy poet, essayist and law academic, Alison Whitaker. Hum. It's the dull hum of a helicopter overhead that wakes me up. A few pocketed families scatter from their games, soccer, volleyball, running really fast together in a straight line, being timed. It's hard to find a way to justify falling asleep in the park, books splayed on my abdomen, as exercise, even within 10 kilometres of my apartment. But the sun was just so warm on my thighs. It straddled heavy on me. The book was boring. No one was around. I felt safe. Flushed under the sound of that helicopter, I think a bit about my bad heart and whether it can be useful when I needed it to be instead of the liability it's been so far in a pandemic. But who'd want to go to a hospital right now? I settle for pretending to do crunches. We get followed by cops, even when the activity exemption is obvious. I learn early on from what you could call euphemistically comparable experiences. Those small indicators shouldn't matter, but do, because race and class do. Exercise exemptions. Wear good leggings and a matching top. Go to the nice walking tracks near the Dremoyne McMansions where police stay in their cars and they just do laps. When you're there, walk with your chest up and out. A little smile. Shopping exemptions. Always buy a loaf of bread and UHT milk and at least one canned good. Never cough. Don't linger. Get carded anyway. I'm in Sydney's inner west, an enclave of relative wealth. I have light skin that affords me a pass from and offers me complicity in most public and carceral racism. I have plenty of bread now. I'm doing okay. I am not hungry, criminalised, unsupported or surveilled. I don't have an army at my door. 
The vending machines at Central and Redfern stations are slow, but with creaseless cash and quick fingers you can get a bottle of sparkling water from them while the train's pulled up for passengers. Sparkling water, I'm told, gets irritants like OC spray out of your eyes a little quicker. If you or anyone around you is scared of going to the hospital because you can't breathe and because you matter and because you've chanted as much for the last eight hours. Uh, she said her name was, but I uh, took to calling her. She was maybe early forties, two kids. We met through the open window of my car with its long and loud first gear. I blushed a little when the engine strained towards her testing table. Working in the city meant dancing this little odd line with a few times each month. <clears throat> They're working you hard today. Yeah, beats the hospital. Could you check your address for me? Yeah, it's in. Yeah. And your address is .edu.au? You work in education this whole time? Yeah, at a uni. But I don't teach, so just don't tick that. What do you do at uni if you don't teach? Well, it's ticked. Okay, head back. Almost done. Don't cry. She saw my exaggerated wet blinks. She offered me a quiet, good girl. And every time I saw her for a test, which was until Laverty took the contract and the former e-waste site privatised, my hips fluttered, driving up to her testing table. Every piece of lockdown writing is a chore. There's no friction in the action. We're condemned to the dull hum a crisis takes on when it's gone on too long. I remember few notable events. There's no purchase in memory anymore. There's nowhere to hang the weight of a story. Every poem in lockdown, at least mine, succumbs to its own exaggerations. Even here, my grotty interiority. I am impotent, wordless again. Too many op-eds have scared me off simile or metaphor. This is not like this. This is hardly like that. It's embarrassing, the public urge to distinguish your suffering from everybody else's, to try to find in it a unique and named place in the whole, mostly inside and mostly alone. But becoming right and righteous is not the same as coming home. The quiet I'm cultivating not because I'm above this public urge, just because I'm right now too stupid to find words for it, has its own accidental wisdom. A lockdown is not, despite what you may have been told, like a prison. There are several young black men on the roof of Park Lee, a place that's like a prison because it is one. Prisons should crumble, but especially in pandemics that predate on breath and air and space. They already effectively use those tools to incubate death, disease and suffering. No, I haven't digressed. In the footage online, I watch two competing plumes of debris rise into a sunset. One is black smoke. The other is a spiraling grey-white mist. Tear gas. The young people get into formation and hold their fists in the golden hour for the drones coming by. Their silhouettes are, for a second, gilded. They've arranged their shirts on the roof at their feet to spell BLM, like others did at Long Bay Prison about a year ago now. That bit doesn't make the nightly news, but mobs see it elsewhere. 
Briefly, these men step into their power and we bask in the responsibility that that confers upon us. Lots have been said and written about how familiar this dull hum of crisis is to mob. I don't want to repeat it. I only want to follow my family's little precedent, a path of hedonistic spite that we push as wide as a narrowing catastrophe allows. I know this containment isn't that girl's home. I know this containment isn't Tipperina. In spite of everything, my life's path is relatively wide and the hedonism permitted me is nice. I get to watch in awe as a black cockatoo comes close to somewhere it should be but can't, dangling like a fruit over the profane. A degrade McDonald's, falling apart apartments, West Connects tunnels. The leggings are done. I'm buying leotards. My five-year sobriety is dead. I get to watch the novel coronavirus, see it creep up towards Gomorrah country, and for the first time I allow myself to catastrophize. It is, after all, where I promised my weakened heart I'd die, not a place for wholesale death to go. Again. That story was written and read by Alison Whitaker and originally performed for When Breath Meets Air, an event curated by Tina Huang for the Boundless Festival. You can find Alison on Twitter at AJ underscore Whitaker. Do you want to meet and get to know fellow emerging audio makers? Join the All The Best team at the Everly Hotel from 6pm on Monday, June 26 to network, share ideas, and most importantly, have some fun. If you aren't local to Sydney, you can join us online the following night, Tuesday, June 27th, for our winter pitch workshop and a seminar on adapting written work to audio. All the Best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we make these stories and pay our respects to Elders past and present. All the Best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung lands and 8CCC on Arunde and Waramungu lands. The All the Best editorial manager is Mal Chun and Phoebe Adler-Ryan is our production manager. Our social media producer is Isabella Lee. Patrick McKenzie is our community coordinator. Shining Bird composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and were made possible by the Art Gallery of New South Wales and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find our full archive of more than 500 episodes at allthebestradio.com. I'm Madhura Prakash. Thanks for listening.